Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. In the Christian calendar, Easter isn't just a day, it's a season. The season of Easter, or Eastertide, begins on Easter Sunday and lasts 50 days until Pentecost. And I know what you're thinking, 50 days of Easter, that's a lot of ham. But I love the idea that the seven weeks of Lent leading up to Easter Sunday is a time of repentance and fasting, and the seven weeks after Easter Sunday is a time of celebration and feasting. And while our celebration continues to be impacted by the reality that this virus has now claimed over 3 million lives around the world, what better time is there to celebrate that Christ has risen, a new day has dawned, and death no longer has the final word. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. Because Easter means, in the words of Frederick Buechner, the worst thing isn't the last thing. Our gospel readings during the seven Sundays of Easter are all from the Gospel of John, except for today's reading, which is from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Our text today that Christina read for us earlier is really the counterpart of the passage we were in last week as Sean taught us from John chapter 20. So the setting in Luke 24 is that some of the disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus, but others of them hadn't yet. And so they're all in this room together trying to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, we're told in Luke 24, starting in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you, which is really a Jewish way of saying, what's up, guys? Which is just such a great way to make an entrance after you've risen from the dead. And how do they respond? In verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. So we often think of Easter as a sweet, sentimental story, but for the people who were actually there, it was terrifying. I mean, imagine that you were there when your friend died, and you went to their funeral, you watched them be buried in the ground, And then a few days later, while you're still in shock and you're still mourning, your friend, the one who died, appears in the room and says, Sup, guys? You wouldn't be like, hey, awesome, you came back to life. You'd be freaking out, thinking you were seeing things or being punked or something. That's what happens. Jesus shows up, and they think he's a ghost. But he says in verse 39, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. So the disciples' first thought is that if Jesus has risen from the dead, then he obviously hasn't physically risen from the dead. It must be some sort of spiritual resurrection. Like Even though his body was in the ground, they could somehow still see his spirit or sense his presence in some way. But right away, Jesus makes sure they know he's not a ghost. They aren't just seeing his spirit. It's really him. 
He says, look at me, look at my body. Look at my hands and my feet, reach out and touch me. I'm not just a ghost or a spirit. I'm not a hologram or a hallucination. I am a real flesh and blood human being. And still, even though they're looking right at him, you're, they're having a hard time believing their eyes. Verse 41 says, And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So first, they're startled and frightened, and now they're overjoyed and amazed, but they still can't believe it. So Jesus goes, you guys got anything to eat around here? Because overthrowing the grave makes you pretty hungry. Verse 42 says, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So again, Jesus is trying to show them that he's not a ghost or a spirit, that he's a real person with a real body and a real appetite. So the Bible goes out of its way to make sure that we know that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just a spiritual or symbolic or metaphorical resurrection. It was, in fact, a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is what Christians confess in the creed when we say we believe the third day he rose again from the dead. I think our tendency as modern readers is to take this story and to spiritualize it, meaning it didn't really have to happen in order for it to be meaningful. In fact, I think that probably most people in Central Oregon would say something like, I like the message of Easter. It's all about New beginnings, fresh starts, second chances. Do I think that Jesus of Nazareth actually came back to life? No, but it's still an inspirational story. But I hope you can see how if you take the biblical account seriously, you can't spiritualize Easter. That's the whole point of this passage. If you spiritualize the story, it might cheer you up, but ultimately it's going to let you down. So, what difference does it make that Jesus' resurrected body is flesh and bones? First, it means that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So, hundreds of years before Christ, God had spoken to his people through Hebrew prophets and promised them that one day the Messiah would come bring judgment to the world, bring liberation to the oppressed, and bring resurrection to the dead. This is what was known as the day of the Lord in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, one specific prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14 says that on the day of the Lord, when the Messiah comes, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So if you go to Israel today and stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, this is what you see. This is the Valley of Kidron, also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people are buried here with the hope that when the day of the Lord comes, they'll have a front row seat for the action. Uh, today, these grave sites are some of the most expensive plots of real estate in the world. They started around 30,000 U.S. dollars and go up from there the closer you get to the Temple Mount. 
And we may wonder, what's the big deal? Why does it matter where your body's buried if you're dead? Well, for the Hebrew people, they didn't believe that death was the end of the story. They believed the prophets that said one day God's Messiah would come and the dead would be raised. This was the normative view from the Hebrew scriptures, that one day at the end of history, there would be this great resurrection. So think about the conversation that Jesus had with Mary and Martha after their brother brother Lazarus had died. Jesus said to them that their brother would rise again which is kind of a bold statement to make at a funeral. Like, don't worry, I know he's dead, but one day he'll rise again. You'd think it would freak him out, but they don't freak out. In fact, in John 11, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So this was the typical Jewish understanding. On the last day, all God's people who had died would be raised to life. So that's why for hundreds of years before the time of Christ, the Hebrew people cared about where they were buried because they believed that their resurrection was coming. But here's what's interesting. When Martha said that she knew Lazarus would be raised on the last day, Jesus actually tells her that that's not what he's talking about. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So Jesus tells her that the resurrection God had promised to his people was way closer than she realized. In fact, she was talking to him. Jesus is the resurrection that God has promised to his people. See, even though the Jews believed in this great resurrection at the end of history, none of them would have expected someone to rise from the dead in the middle of history, which is why no one understood what was going on when Jesus rose from the dead. It was never supposed to be just one person. It was supposed to be all of God's people. What Jesus does, as we'll come to see, as we come to see, is even better. Jesus says that whoever believes in him will live even though they die. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. So we don't place our trust in a future event. We place our trust in a person who, when he died, died for the sins of the world. And when he rose... He rose for the life of the world. Secondly, the bodily resurrection of Christ means that our future is resurrection as well. So when we say that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, we don't mean that the Hebrew people were totally mistaken in believing that one day God would bring about a great resurrection. They just didn't understand that Jesus was the foretaste or a sneak preview of that day. But very soon after Jesus' resurrection, his disciples began to put it all together. That Jesus was the first to be raised. He was like a down payment. And the rest is coming soon. I was out in my yard this morning checking on some of our plants and shrubs and trees that as the spring comes are starting to come back to life. 
and there's a few of our trees that I was a little worried about, wasn't sure if they were gonna make it through the winter. And so I stood there closely inspecting, is there any sign of life, any new bud, any new leaves? And I can't tell you, this is kind of the dad geek in me, how much I was excited when I saw this new little bud, this glimpse of life, when I thought there was just death. One of the terms that the biblical writers use to describe Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, that he's that first sign of life, that little bud that's popping through. And one day there's going to be a lot more where that came from. So that means that when we come to places like Luke chapter 24 and we get a glimpse of what Jesus' resurrected body was like, we're actually getting a glimpse of our own future bodies. New Testament writers talk about this all over the place, but listen to 1 John chapter 3. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So when it comes to the question of the future, of where human history is headed, there are really two primary views that Christians have held. Two different stories with two different emphases that would lead us, if we take them seriously, down two very different paths. And one of these stories is really new, and the other one is really old. Uh, one story we might call rapture. The second we might call resurrection. So if you come from an evangelical background, like I do, then chances are that you associate Christ's second coming with the idea of the rapture, which is the idea that at some point in the future, Jesus is going to come and rescue and remove all the Christians from the earth and take them away to heaven while the rest of the world is left behind to face the tribulation of God's wrath. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and Matthew 24 are really the main two passages where this idea of rapture uh, comes from. Now, I said one of our stories is new and the other is old. Which one do you think the rapture is? The rapture is a new idea. In fact, the idea of the rapture really didn't come about until the 1820s. But since then, it's really taken off, most notably among American evangelicals. Um, European Christians never really bought into it. The Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, Calvinist traditions um, have never really held to it. But as American evangelicals, we've eaten it up over the last hundred years or so. That's the story um, of the rapture. But the old story, the other story, the story that the early church held to and that most Christians throughout history and around the world have held to isn't rapture, it's resurrection. The early church came to believe that Jesus' resurrection was a sneak preview of our resurrection. Or that whatever is true of Christ's resurrected body will one day be true of ours. Now, this is complicated 
and mysterious stuff, admittedly. And Paul even spends pretty much the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 trying to thrash this stuff out, and it's still confusing. But the basic idea is that people often think that the Christian belief in resurrection simply means life after death or going to heaven when you die. But in the Jewish world of the first century, it meant a new embodied life in God's new world. Which means that Jesus' resurrection body gives us a glimpse of what's in store for us. That we're going to have a body forever. That the earth is our home forever. That your feet will touch the ground in the kingdom of God. So the early Christian understanding of Christ's return, about the future, about where human history is headed, it's all about resurrection not rapture, which means that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. That The dead in Christ will be raised with him, and we're going to get an Easter of our own. Which leads us to our final point. If Christ's resurrection isn't metaphorical or spiritual or symbolic, but is actually physical, then third, it means that this world is worth fighting for. See, if you believe in the rapture story, that in the future Jesus is going to take all his people away to heaven and God's going to pour out his wrath on the earth, then how would that cause you to live today? How would that eschatology or view of the end shape the way that you see the world? How would you see poverty and injustice? How would you see racism and disease? How would you see the poor and the oppressed? How would it affect the way you treat the planet or even your own body? There's a phrase commonly uttered amongst rapture-believing Christians. It's all gonna burn. What are they saying? They're saying, don't get too attached or too invested or too involved in the things of the world here on earth because one day soon, we're out of here. And anyone who's trying to make the world a better place is just polishing the bell on a sinking ship, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But I think we know that as followers of Jesus, that doesn't sound like the life that he's called us to. He's called us to lives of love, of forgiveness, of compassion, caring for the poor, loving our enemies, proclaiming a gospel that's good news of great joy for all the people. If Jesus' resurrection isn't just symbolic or metaphorical, but is physical and bodily, that means that this world is worth fighting for. Listen to how N.T. Wright puts it. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. Easter means that in a world of injustice, violence, and degradation, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. 
What a beautiful idea that the bodily resurrection of Christ would cause us to see this world and those that we share it with as valuable, as those whom God hasn't given up on, as those that God is still at work in which he's bringing about redemption and healing and reconciliation. And this idea actually sets Christianity apart from pretty much any other worldview or religion. There's a Sri Lankan scholar named Vinath Ramachandra, and he says it this way. Christian salvation lies not in escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique. That's why when someone says there must be salvation in other faiths, I ask them what salvation they're talking about, not the salvation of the world. No faith holds out a promise for eternal salvation for the world, like the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of Jesus' salvation is the restoration of God's whole world. Our passage in Luke 24 ends with Jesus opening his disciples' minds to understand the scripture. In verse 46, he tells them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the gospel that the scriptures proclaim. And my question for you today, Antioch, is the same question that Jesus asked Martha that day at her brother's funeral. Do you believe this? Are you trusting Jesus to be your resurrection and your life? And if not, I have to ask you, who are you going to trust over Jesus? Which author or professor or scientist or philosopher are you going to place your faith in instead of the resurrected Christ? All of them may have interesting things to say about God and about life, but only Jesus claims to be God and to be life. If he would have died and stayed dead like any other person, then there would be nothing that special about him, and we'd be all left trying to find our own way to life and happiness. But the fact that he died and then rose again changes everything. It shows us that he isn't just a good man or a wise moral teacher who tells us how to get to God. He is God who has come to us and lived for us and suffered and died for us and rose again for us. So again, do you believe this? And if you do, Jesus says, that's when life begins.